Welcome to Live with Greg or Live with Greg, depending on semantics. <laughs> All right, here for another episode of Live with Greg with Holly. What's Searly? Searly. Yeah. Who I I'm very grateful that you were brave enough on next door uh-huh. to volunteer to be a yeah. guest. Yeah, that'd be pretty cool. Right on. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And um, what are the your credentials? I'm a marriage family child therapist licensed by California. Okay. Yeah. And you're willing to talk about healthy marriage and relationship in ADHD. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I just love that. Yes. Combo. And as I said, it could be a combo package. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes they come with the marriage. ADHD. Yeah. Yep. So I said to you earlier that I'm a skeptic with ADHD. Right. Right. And that it seems like it's a label for something that is a natural part, especially of childhood. Mm. I think children have are like nuclear energy and bouncing off walls. True. So how do True. you differentiate a natural child's curiosity, playfulness from a psychological is ailment the right word? Disorder. Disorder. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's really a really good question. Stephen Hinshaw, who's at UCSF and one of the top experts on ADHD, when asked, is it nature or nurture? And he says both. <laughs> the audience always goes, huh? And it's genetic. It's as inheritable as height, and there are genes that have been found to be related to ADHD. That doesn't necessarily make it a disorder just because it's genetic. Um, But the uh, other aspect is that it's not an issue if you don't have compulsory education. What's compulsory education? Having to go to school. Okay. Where it's a legal legal requirement. (laughs) Right, 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 right. It's compulsory by law, and uh, so kids have to sit and they have to focus and they have to concentrate in ways that is are very different than when you're outside playing. But it's also the case that ADHD sometimes interferes with social interactions because of the difficulty focusing, um, because of the difficulty tracking a conversation and therefore saying things sort of out of sync with what the group is talking about. And kids will be like, what? What's this kid saying? Sometimes it's very funny, and sometimes it's very off-putting to the group. So um, it's, only, it's, it's only a disorder when it shows up and interferes with being able to form relationships and have friends and being able to succeed in school. And the succeeding in school is, you know, it's a required job of kids. Have you any thoughts that potentially compulsory education is the disorder? (laughs) Yes, I do. (laughs) I love asking kids with ADHD if you could create a school, a learning environment, 
that would work for your brain and your needs, what would it look like? And so often they say it would be outdoors and that they'd be doing instead of sitting. They'd be creating with their hands instead of creating written material. And uh, that there'd be a lot of discussion and interaction. So they go for the engagement. Are there any specialists in the medical field that are looking at the potential of children with this gene and potential for ADHD having a different educational mm. system for Yeah. You know, Stephen Hinshaw probably is because of his view about compulsory education being, you know, that ADHD isn't a disorder unless you have compulsory education. Um, so he's probably looking into it, but I don't know that for sure. But no, it's it's really something that is a need, interestingly, sidebar, um, a client of mine uh, who is a sophomore in high school, and he has ADHD and ASD, he's on the spectrum, ASD, autism spectrum disorder, so ADHD and ASD, and he was asking me the question of, you know, why schools, why public schools, he's in a private school, why public schools don't uh, provide an education that works for neuro, and he used the word neurodiverse students. Really good question. Really good question. And it's funding. It's there's the federal government has a mandate to provide appropriate education for students who are neurodiverse, but they don't fully fund that mandate. So the states don't get enough funds to provide the services for kids with ADHD. But even if they did, it would take a whole mind shift to create schools that were outdoors, that were more interactive. You know, and there's some teachers that provide, are more adept at providing that kind of an education, you know, in that direction. More engaging, more interactive, um, who allow kids to do a play or a poster or a model instead of a, a written piece of work. Have, when my eldest was in nursery school and preschool, Waldorf education. Right. And so that seemed very fringe at the time, but now she's 24, we decided. Um, yeah, yeah. So it seems like a lot of the elements of Waldorf, like being out in nature, being more interactive with the world, are becoming more prevalent in regular education. Have you had experience where a youngster, like let's say six to eight, comes in and if their educational system is changed, then their propensity of ADHD changes? Yeah, it's not that ADHD is cured by an environmental change, but it becomes less of an issue. 
So, as I said, it's, you know, it's genetically informed, but um, the environment really makes a difference in terms of what, what shows up. So, um, the problem is, is that even with the variety that's developing in public schools and the awareness of different kinds of learners, um, too often there's not enough flexibility to make the environment one that is ADHD friendly. You know, kids need activity breaks, they need to get up and move. All kids do. But kids without ADHD, their brain goes to sleep. <laughs> They've seen it on functional MRIs. You sit still, the energy in the brain goes down. Um, and if you're moving or interacting, the brain is more awake. And it's, you know, all of us have had that experience of sitting in a big um, lecture hall and or big music performance where we're bored and our eyes start to close and our head starts to nod and we try to stay awake and it's painful to try to stay awake when we're that bored. And ADHD, for most folks with ADHD, school is a boredom tolerance task. It's really hard to sit still and pay attention. So these kids are in pain trying to stay awake and focus and sit still. Um, and uh, if the class is interesting and engaging, then their brain isn't shutting off and they're not being a wiggle worm because wiggling wakes up the brain. So you get a kid with ADHD and they either like go still and shut down or they get very, you know, they got their foot over their head and their desk spinning around and they're shooting, you know, spitballs at people and they're, they, to keep their brain awake. <laughs> so as a therapist, what tools do you give, like say, like the sophomore in high school to acclimate to the environment that they mandatorily have to attend. Right. Well, one of the things that research shows is that um, for kids with ADHD, success in life is determined by the ability to self-advocate, to have at least one adult that believes in them and at least one friend, one good friend. So self-advocacy, you know, being able to say to the teacher, you know, I think that if you would allow me to take a five-minute break when, my, when I start to space out and go outside and walk the hall and come back, I think I'd be better able to concentrate. Or could I have my desk at the back of the room and be able to stand up when you're giving a lecture? Because I think, I think I'd be better able to concentrate. So I work with kids to come up with experiments that they ask their teacher to do to see if it helps them to concentrate better. So self-advocacy is a huge um, skill and you know for kids that are shy or who have social anxiety and ADHD or any of the neurodiverse learning conditions, um, if they're shy then we have to deal with the, the social anxiety first before they can feel free to go up to the teacher and say you know this would work for me are you willing to try it? So you think it's best for the student to be the instigator of change in the classroom? Well, you know, like in couples' relationships, I'm more likely 
to be able to change myself, which is hard enough, than I am to make you change. So a student in an educational system is more likely, if they can make some change and ask specifically for themselves, they're more likely to get their needs met than trying to change the system. However, the system needs to change. Right, right. So it's a dilemma. But I do see as, you know, the person's coming to you for themselves. And I see how you're saying, like, if they're able to advocate for themselves, now they have a means that'll work for them throughout their life. Right. Instead of always having someone step in to... Right. Yeah. Right. But we need protests of people in the streets <laughs> saying, send the funding feds down to the states so that we can provide better education and be more responsive to our students' needs. We really need that. It's it's really it's a, it's a civil rights issue that the funding isn't following the federal mandate to provide appropriate education for kids. So are you involved with the educational system? I I through my clients I'm involved a lot. Um, I also was uh, president of the board of a for a school for kids specifically with learning disabilities. Um, those schools, you know, people with funds can afford them. People without afford funds can't. Was it here in Marin? Yeah, here in Marin. Wow. Is it still active? Yeah. Yeah, it's been around for decades. Wow. Started in, um, parents started a little school in their living room, and there were, I think, five students, and they hired a teacher to teach their five students, and now it's a school... Um, I'm not sure how many students. I think I think it's a hundred. Star Academy, and it, it's third grade through post high school. They have a two year post high school wow. program now. Yeah. What's the um, thought behind a post high school? What's the what? What's what are they thinking? What's post high school? Like I think of post high school as college. Right. Right. Well, for neurodiverse learners, um, well, especially with ADHD, because it's actually a developmental disorder in the brain and the brain parts of the brain with ADHD are about a third behind peers in development but that development continues all the way into their 30s and so a lot of folks with ADHD the symptoms of ADHD lessen by the time they're in their late 20s or early 30s so um, what was it you asked me? <laughs> About what's the thought process with the post... Oh, post-high school. Yeah. Right. So it's giving kids... On the one hand, it's giving kids an extra two years before they go off to college, if they go to college. Um, but it's also two years of helping build self-advocacy skills, organizational skills, executive functioning skills, um, and social skills. You know the 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 kinds of skills that schools don't generally teach, but which are really key to success in life. Being able to track time and organize your stuff and organize your your thinking, and to be able to have friends and to be able to self advocate. So that post high school program helps with that, and they those kids take classes at the local community college. 
So they're um, getting college credits? They're getting college credits, but they're taking, you know, one or two classes, not a, not a full load. Right, right. And so they're um, part-time in school and then part-time working on these other skills. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, rather than, you know, ADHD in particular, kids with ADHD go on and the dropout rate and the failure rate freshman year in college, it's bad. Yeah. It's really uh-huh. bad. It's really bad with ADHD. But um, Edge Foundation, which is an organization that works with coaching students with ADHD, particularly college students, um, did research and they had uh, kids with ADHD, freshmen, and they randomly put them in two groups. One group got coaching for executive functioning, organizational and time management skills, and the other was just a support group. And the one with the uh, executive functioning skills being taught, their rate of lasting through their freshman year and succeeding and going on to their sophomore year was a lot higher than the students that didn't get that. Yeah. All right. What would be, like, something for a parent to look for and attempt to be aware of to know if their child's ADHD? Well, it put them in a compulsory education environment, the school, (laughs) and it tends to show up more so than at home. Sometimes parents can pick up things at home in terms of, you know, the, the child won't sit for any length of time at dinner. They're they're done. They're out. They want to go play. So they're two minutes in and out. Um, but asking teachers, what do you see at school? Uh, how's my child doing in terms of focus? How are they doing in terms of being able to complete assignments? How are they doing in terms of being able to uh, absorb what it is that you're teaching and show you that they've absorbed it. Um, A lot of kids with ADHD are not absorbing the curriculum and therefore they can't say what it is that they learned. On the other hand, a child can look like they're not absorbing the curriculum because they're they're looking around or they're fidgeting or they're getting up and down and you ask them a question and bingo, they're totally focused because they've been moving around. So they've actually been paying attention. They just don't look like they're paying attention. And that's where teachers will say, you know, sit down, Johnny. Sit down and focus rather than, Johnny, did you understand? Da, 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 da. Yeah, da, 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 da. Oh, yeah, you got it. Okay, why don't you go to the back of the room and run around? Right, right, right. <laughs> All right, so... Um Less of a skeptic than when I started. um, (laughs) Oh, good, good. (laughs) Um, Do you have instances where a parent or parents come in with a child believing that it's ADHD and it's really the parent's not engaged with the child? So in other words, the parent is coming in with an excuse for their lack of parenting. I haven't seen that yet. I've seen where it isn't ADHD, but it is a sleep disorder. Sleep deprivation causes the same symptoms as ADHD. Um, 
but ironically, folks with ADHD have a higher rate of sleep disorders. <laughs> so the sleep disorders complicate the ADHD, exacerbate the ADHD, you know. So, um, but, uh, you know, that's a whole other, a whole other aspect of my work is helping parents. I work with parents to help them parent their, their kids. And what we know is that you know, authoritarian parents and permissive parents don't end up having kids that are stable and learning and growing and developing in healthy ways. And that you need to be an authoritative parent, have, provide structure, but also provide warmth. So it's when that research came out, people were pretty stunned that a bossy, controlling parent, we know, results in kids that can be, you know, defensive or act out. And we didn't know that being permissive, me being growing up in the hippie days, mm -hmm. that being permissive and being too loose actually isn't healthy for kids either, that they need a certain amount of structure. But that structure has to come with love and warmth and caring that's expressed. Right, empathy. Empathy, yeah. Um, so, like, I have a friend who has Huntington's, and I know that there's a genetic test that can be... Right. Is there a genetic test for ADHD? Well, the research is doing that, that testing, but it's really, really expensive. So I don't, know, I don't know that an individual, adult or child, wondering about ADHD can go in for a genetic test. I'm, I'm sure there's a way to do that, but it would be pretty expensive. Um, but there are, uh, and it's not just one gene, it's several genes that are implicated with ADHD. Um, so, yeah. So how do you um, diagnose ADHD? Like if someone, how do you, because you just even said that sleep disorder can show up as though it was ADHD. Right. And you also said ADHD can create sleep disorders. It seems like a rat's nest of things going on. How do you start pulling yeah. the strings out? Yeah. Well, again, research has been really clear that a clinical interview with somebody who's an expert in ADHD results in an accurate diagnosis of ADHD. That's not inaccurate, that's an accurate, <laughs> I'm trying to enunciate right. properly here, diagnosis of ADHD where there's fewer false diagnosis of ADHD or missing the ADHD. And the clinical interview is what I do, um, asking questions to parents, asking questions to schools, asking questions of the kid um, to get a picture of, you know, what their experience is and how hard certain things are or aren't for them. Um, and... Uh, I just spaced out. What was the question? <laughs> I have ADHD. Oh, do you really? Yes, yes. Ah, Diagnosed late. You might have to stand up in this. Yes, exactly. Where's my fidget? I need to. Yeah, is your chair locked? <laughs> yeah. I was yeah. going to ask that. Is one of the tools a 
child can have is a fidget device that they absolutely like right behind you is a can see that silver can this, yeah yeah, yeah. Pull, oh. open it up and it's magnetic balls. Uh, balls and i've got colored ones and silver ones and i've got a whole basket of fidget toys over there that somebody can experiment with and find out what works with them and it's really interesting because kids will find um, spinners are popular will find what works for them and they tend to choose it every time but what one kid chooses isn't necessarily what every kid chooses so I've got a kid that's got comes in and I've got a, a toy that is that is made up of blocks little blocks making a big block and you can turn the block and make it into other shapes and he just fiddles with that the whole time with his hands picks it out every single time every single time the um the magnetic balls is a popular one uh and the spinners are popular um yeah so my question was about the rat's nest of um but you've kind of answered it. You've said yeah. that uh, clinical interviews, and when you first said it, I was picturing like a single sit-down interview. Like, how can you die this? But you said in your answer, you go to the school, you go to the parents, you check out this child's environment, right, and learn what how they are in the environment, right. So I ask I ask parents if they have any a neuropsych evaluation to bring in that report, a copy for me if they have that, or if the school's done testing, what the testing is from the school, and um, a sampling of reports, report cards, you know, right. or notes from the school. So sometimes I go to the school specifically, sometimes just those notes, you know, Johnny can't stay in his seat. <laughs> Johnny doesn't finish his work. Johnny doesn't pay attention. You know, there's certain things that teachers notice in a compulsory education environment that are clues, but I have to check with the child and check with the parents to see if there are subtle things that they're seeing at home or not so subtle and what the child's experiencing in school. And if the child says things like, oh, I get so bored in history. Hmm. Do you like history? No. <laughs> yeah. Any classes you don't get bored in? I don't get bored in PE. Oh, why do you think that is? Because we're moving. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, I get clues from sometimes what the kids tell me. Um, but it's the combination of school feedback, parent feedback, and the experience of the kiddo. Okay. So you have ADHD. And mm-hmm. it seems like, like I know when I was growing up, ADHD wasn't talked about, wasn't a thing. No. So, you, there's an element of advocating for yourself that you had to learn, I imagine. Well, I didn't do a good job learning to self-advocate in high school and college, but, you know, during the protests and when schools were shut down because of protests. We had at my university uh, classes outdoors and alternative um, options that we didn't have before. And I did a paper 
for three classes, integrating what I was learning from the three classes and putting it into one, one paper and sharing that paper with my professors. They all loved that paper. They said, oh, this is, we wish all students would be like this. It wasn't the typical paper. And it was what I wanted to do. And so, you know, it was during that protest era as a young woman and as a young feminist that I realized I actually had my own voice. And I began to express my own voice. And so that was the beginning of being able to self-advocate. But it was a discovery that happened in the context of an environment that supported um, your people developing their own voice and speaking right. out. Right. So, right. yeah. All right. So now this is sort of segueing into the couples and relationships uh, yes. and stuff. And yes. this is a personal question. You can blow it off. But I, uh, do you have a partner? Or have you been married? I'm divorced okay. and dating. Okay. Yeah. And so I'm seeing a couple different men dating. Um, and it's the... What I know about couples therapy continues to influence me in my relationships with with men and with partners. So, you know, I'm 74 and I'm still learning for myself. Not just what to do with couples, but, you know, discovering things about how I am. Like my son said to me... uh, which isn't very flattering, but he he said, Mom, you're passive-aggressive. Ask for what you want. And I was like, I'm not passive-aggressive. I ask for what I want. And then a couple months later, I was like, Ah, I think I'm indirect. I think I indirectly ask. I complain in order to get what I want, rather than saying, Would you do this for me? And you just hit a very, I think, pertinent aspect to psychology is... Without that aha moment, you do think you're asking for what you want. Like in your body, you are right. having an experience of asking for right. you. But right. what the other person's experience is, is you're just complaining. Right. Well, this is part of why I love couples therapy. I work with individuals too. Yeah. But with individuals, they have their way of understanding themselves, which is what I get. I get their understanding of themselves and what they report other people say, but it's their understanding. Right, right. But if they bring in a partner, I get the interaction and I can see things that are getting in their way, that are stumbling blocks that they can't see because their partner is triggered by it or sees it or calls it out. And uh, it's an opportunity to grow that is more profound than individual therapy. I mean, I think individual therapy is, is you know, a really remarkable uh, process. But to really get to the nub of interactionally, what we do and don't do that messes things up, bring in a partner or a friend or a child, you know, their their child or or their parent, and yeah. it's like, oh, you see a different side of them. It's yes. it's uh, it's pretty interesting. It is interesting. Yes, absolutely. So was ADHD an issue in your marriage? Your ADHD, right? Right. Uh, I yeah. From my point of view, <laughs> I don't think so. Um, I'm. I don't have the symptoms that I have are subtle. They're not. Um, 
my son, who's adopted and has, I can talk about him because he's been on panel discussions mm-hmm. talking about having dyslexia and ADHD. So he's in, he's part of a book that was written, wrote some chapters on what it was like to grow up with these disabilities. Um, and by the way, he gets really annoyed when people say learning differences. He says, this is not a difference, this is a disability. It's an impairment, I can tell you, because I live it. Mm. <laughs> so it's interesting, because a lot of people prefer, who are neurodiverse, prefer learning difference, because it's less of a label. Right. And, uh, you know, and for some people, it feels like it's less of a stigma. And for my son, it was like it was inaccurate. It was right. too lightweight. Um, Sounds like he needed the weight of the statement to help his advocating for himself. Right, right, right. This is impairing, and this is what I need in order to succeed. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I picture the equivalent of someone in a wheelchair coming up the stairs. You need to know, yeah, those are stairs, and I'm in a wheelchair. Right. This isn't going to work. This isn't going to work. So there's an interesting story that Rick Lavoie who's uh, another expert in the learning, the neuro, neurodiverse world. He headed up a school for kids that learn differently for, I don't know, like 30 years or something. But he's a speaker. He speaks all over the country. And he tells a story. I don't know whether it's a true story or made-up story, but it's a great story of a kid in a wheelchair on the bus getting off the bus, and it snowed all night. And the custodian is um, shoveling off the steps. And the kid in the wheelchair says, could you shovel the ramp? He says, oh, yeah, I'm going to get to that once I'm done with the stairs. And the kid says, well, if you shovel the ramp instead of the stairs, we can all get up. Uh, (laughs) And that's generally uh, true, is that what works for neurodiverse kids also supports other kids. Yeah, absolutely. But it's, you know, you make it work for the kids that are neurodiverse doesn't interfere with the education of the others. doesn't have to. All right, so you were starting, because I asked about ADHD and your marriage as an issue. You said right. no. You mentioned your son. Oh, no. I got oh, oh, yeah. Well, my son giving me feedback about being passive-aggressive. Right. Right. So maybe that affected my marriage. Right. You know, being indirect and complaining instead of saying this is what I need or this is what I want. Do you think the indirectness was a product of ADHD? Uh, no. I think that was more psychological. Yeah. Yeah. What I grew up with as a kid. Yeah. The models that I had. Yeah. So do you and your son have a healthy, it sounds like it, a healthy means of communicating with each other? Uh, we, we do, but it's really interesting. He's fiery. And so when something bugs him, you know it. He's, he doesn't keep things in. And I tend to withdraw when I'm upset and keep things in. So we have this dynamic between the two of us where he can be loud and I disappear. So I've had to work at not disappearing when he's loud and upset, and he's had to work at kind of quieting down so I can hear it. So mom doesn't disappear. Right, exactly. Well, it sounds like exactly. you both want to 
remain in relationship. Yes, yes. Which, we love each other dearly. Right, right. Yeah. Which is kind of, I think, fundamental in a healthy marriage. Right. The desire to remain together. Yeah, the aspiration to make it work. Right. And the aspiration to make it work and the aspiration to do one's part to make it work and the awareness that it's never going to be perfect. I think that, you know, we've got this notion in our culture that if if we're out of sync in a relationship or we're troubled by things and somehow we're not soulmates, therefore we're not meant for each other, rather than, no, soulmates happens that first couple of years of falling in love when, you know, the neurotransmitters are going crazy and causing all the bonding and I am you and you are me and we are all together. And after a certain amount of time, we realize, oh, wait, we are different. We're not always in sync. And we don't get taught by society and in schools, how do you deal with differences? Right. Right? So we either learned it well growing up or we didn't learn it well growing up. And that's what we bring to then having to work out conflicts. Um. Are you aware of an aspect that comes out of affluence and wealth that is a challenge in relationship, in healthy relationship? Because obviously we live in a very affluent and predominantly white privileged society. Yeah. Are you aware of a challenge that grows in that fertile ground that wouldn't grow in, let's say, a less affluent. Right, right. Interesting question. I hadn't. I've never thought of that question. Um, but I just this last month read a book called Dopamine Nation, written by a Stanford. I think she's a psychiatrist who works with addiction. And she talks about our culture being a dopamine-driven culture, always trying to do better. You know, the, I, I see it in, with my clients where, you know, the heroics of who got the least sleep because they were working X number of hours for the corporation or the law firm. And those sorts of heroics actually undermine relationships um, for all kinds of reasons, um, some of which are pretty obvious, I think. But it's, uh, you know, that kind of drivenness then comes out in terms of substance addictions and also behavioral addictions. So, and I would consider those sorts of heroics of who got the least sleep last night is almost a behavioral addiction of, you know, that drivenness, you know, workaholism, I guess, as we call it in common culture. Yeah, and what it comes to mind is it is an element of privilege. Like, there's people who are right. poor who are working three jobs, and they're not bragging about it. Right. Because right. they don't have a choice. Right. Right. So it's like there's a there's an a merit 
being seen in choosing right. to work an 18-hour day. Right. And the effect on spouses or partners is that the partners tend to feel almost like their beloved is having an affair with work because they're choosing work. You know, I worked with one couple where she said, on this vacation, to her husband, on this vacation, would you put away your phone? And he said, I can't. Yeah. That's, um, oh, man. In my own experience, there's an element... It reminds me of that Dr. Seuss story with the two, I forget what they were called, but they, they're walking in a line and neither one of them wants to budge. Oh, they, yeah. They just yeah. stand yeah. and the world grows up around them. Yeah, yeah. And it's so fascinating that... Dr. Element, Seuss. Yeah, but that element of us where, like, I, I've reached my limit, I can't budge. Yeah. You know, for this gentleman to say, I can't. Yeah. Yeah, so with that couple was interesting. Um, she was clear that she wasn't going to stay in the marriage if he couldn't flex up, and he ended up leaving his job with the corporation, and she ended up becoming the main breadwinner, and he the holding down the household and raising the boys. He was so much happier. And she stayed in the marriage. That's awesome. <laughs> That's a great story. Yeah. But, you know, to have to give up your career. But it was, he realized that he, he, he couldn't stay in the corporation and, and have his marriage. Right. It wasn't going to work. Right. When he said, I can't, there was his part of I can't, which is, you know, I really love this job and I love this career and it's so exciting and I'm so important and I get calls on vacation and I have to take them because nobody else can take them. Nobody else can solve these problems. And, uh, oh my God, I'm going to lose my wife. Yeah. You know, he had to face that. And so I left it. Well, I think that reminds me of my Yenna's sister a few years ago told me all her decisions have been made for what's best for the family as a whole. Mm. And the scenario you just talk of, I think we all have things come up in our life where we have a choice. And one choice would be the best for us. Like, this would be awesome for me, mm -hmm. but it's not awesome for the family. Yeah. And what my sister communicated for me is if it's not awesome for the family, she won't choose it. Yeah. See, I, I in working with couples, one of the big influences comes out of the work of Ellen Bader and Pete Pearson, the developmental model. And they emphasize differentiation, being able to speak up about what you want and to be able to hear and be curious about what the other person wants before you try to figure out what to do about it. So in the mix is I and you and we. Right. So it's not, it's not just that the family comes first, it's that I have to be clear about what I want, I have to be open to hearing what you want, or how what I want affects you, how it lands on you, and then put that into the mix of figuring out what to do. I think also I know from my own experience 
there's an element of unable to see the openness of the future. Yeah. So, like, my sister experienced a career in the world later in life when her children were no longer in need of her every moment attention. Right. And so, like, for this gentleman who's taking care of the boys, there, yeah. he may find, like, down the road, his career, he's able to pick it up again, or another career. Or another has, career. Has, yeah. And as you just said, he also found that being at home and taking care of the home was joyful and fulfilling. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, you're right. It's, it's, it's like, you know, when I'm working with couples, as I was talking about with self-advocacy with kids with ADHD, um, I ask couples a lot if they'd be willing to run an experiment for a little while, and we figure out for how long they're going to run the experiment. But making a, a shift or a change, a little one, make a shift or a change and see the effect that it has on them and on their relationship. And of course, leaving your career at a corporation is not a, well, let's run this experiment for a week. <laughs> it's looking at the longer term, well, let's run this experiment for who knows how long. Right. And certainly, I'm not going to be going back to that corporation that I've left, probably. They're not going to take me back. Right. And so, it's a bigger you know, some experiments are a bigger deal. Yeah. They have bigger consequences. And, and they're know, harder to do. Yeah. And I know I've been an independent contractor since 2006. And I've attempted to go back into the paid yeah. world. And at my yeah. age, it just isn't... There is ageism. There is ageism. It's an issue. Yeah. Plus, there's something very satisfying about having your own path or paths yeah. that you're taking that yeah 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 <laughs> um, well that just reminds me in the ADHD world mm -hmm. adult world um, in entrepreneurism people who start their own businesses there's a higher percentage of folks with ADHD in the entrepreneur world than in the general population. So some research was done on why is that so, and it's because people with ADHD like to have their own schedule, to be the boss instead of the employee, um, and it's more interesting to them than working for somebody else. So that entrepreneurism world is often a good fit for folks with ADHD, except that they need an administrative assistant to make sure that the taxes are paid, the paperwork's right. done, the boring stuff gets done. Right. But they're not bored starting a business that they love. Huh. I'm wondering if I have ADHD. <laughs> yeah, from, from being a disbeliever to Yeah, no, wondering. I got it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> nothing more is coming to mind. Well, let me ask you... Let me ask you here this okay. Yeah. Um, have you in your um career experienced a couple who walked in here where their their marriage was dead and they the three of you brought it back to life? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's easier I think to help a couple 
that haven't been engaging with each other but were in love at some point to find ways to engage and to begin to talk with each other and have those difficult conversations that they probably have been avoiding. Usually when there's deadness, it's because there's been a lack of participation. And so often those folks grew up in families where they learn not to speak up about what they wanted. They learned not to self-advocate in their family because they either got shot down or ignored or didn't make any difference. And so they come into a marriage with a certain belief system and they don't they don't self-advocate. They don't speak up about what they want and who they are and what they like, what they don't like, what they prefer. And so helping them to get those communications going with themselves, what do I like, what do I like? Because sometimes they know what they like, they're just inhibited from saying it. Sometimes they don't even know what they like. I don't know. So you do have people that they come in and they just have no idea who they are and what they like? Right. Wow, that's crazy. Right, right, exactly. So it's easier to begin to get some life into those relationships than it is to settle down the flames and the wounds of a constantly fighting couple that fight in ways that are very, very hurtful. You, 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 you. Um, It's really hard to interrupt that dynamic. Uh, it's important to interrupt that dynamic, but it's, you know, those wounds need to be healed in addition to they need to learn ways to communicate that they're, they're foreign to them, that, you know, they grew up in families where fighting happened. Right, right. Um, Do you have communication with your ex? Yes. Yeah, yeah. In fact, my ex and his girlfriend stayed in my in-law unit when they were traveling through on a road trip. Wow. Yeah. And no, that, we're, in, we're in good terms. That's awesome. Yeah, we're better as friends than as partners. It was hard to be partners, but we're better as friends. Okay. Yeah. And you sound like you're very good with that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm good with that. <laughs> <laughs> very clear. Yeah, yeah. I think he is too. Yeah. Well, were there tools or things you experienced and learned from that experience of ending a marriage and learning to still be friends that you could share? Uh, well, it's, it goes back to differentiation about, on my end, speaking up about what I want or what I don't want, what I like, what I don't like. Um, and I think that he's grown in that he's more tuned in to what other people want and not just what he wants, what he prefers. And uh, so I think that makes it easier. Yeah. Is your son happy that you guys are friends? Yes. And he actually... He's, as I said, very, you know, if it's in his head, you know it. He speaks it. And he was very clear. You guys should get divorced. Wow. Yeah. He said, I want to see you with somebody who really cares about you and you really care about him and I need that in my life and so you better get divorced. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, he was very clear. Loves his dad, loves me, 
you know, could That's see funny. that just, we weren't making a good partnership. That's yeah. All right. All right. Yeah. Well, Holly, I I feel completed. Okay. Is there anything that I haven't touched on that you um, think is valuable to? Well, I think um, just to reiterate something I said earlier that that I think that our culture has this false notion that if couples hit a stumbling block that you know the tendency is to think we're done this doesn't work for us anymore rather than this doesn't work for us anymore because maybe we've gotten to the limits of where we are individually in our growth and we need to grow in order for the relationship to revive so I think that you know too often we bail even though I bailed but we were together for I don't know 30 years mm -hmm. we didn't bail quickly right. Right. <laughs> um, but I think too often in our culture we have the bail solution the divorce solution rather than you know, doing the hard work of figuring out should we stay, should we go, but let's let's try to understand each other and grow and figure out where things went awry. Do you see that in parenthood as well? That propensity to like a mistake happens and the individual parent thinks, ah, forget it. I'm useless as a parent or right. this child's useless. Right. Right. Do you see that? Right. Happen? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I do. You know, in the ADHD world specifically, I do a lot of work. When I work with a kid, I also work with the parents about helping them to understand more about ADHD. I ask them questions. What? Well, ask some questions in terms of diagnosis, but um, questions that um, pull out ways that their child is struggling. That is the invisible wheelchair. And I explain, you know, your kiddo is in a wheelchair, you just can't see it. They, they're having trouble in school because dot, 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 dot. And it's not a matter of excusing the ADHD, but a matter of understanding the ADHD and then helping your child to grow and to not be impatient that their growth in some areas is going to be slower. But the job as a parent is still to help them to grow. Do you think the current age we live in is healthier in support of people with ADHD than it was even three years ago? Or? I think there's, on the one hand, more of an understanding of ADHD, which is good. And I see it in you know some workplace environments where people get accommodations that they never would have asked for 10 years ago, 20 years ago. They wouldn't have known to ask for and they're getting those accommodations, so that's that's good news. Um, but I think it's still it's still a big challenge. Do you think when um, well did you witness when schools during the COVID period were it was school from home? Was that even harder for ADHD? Yeah. Was it even harder. Harder, harder for them to concentrate. As a screen at the screen, easier to get distracted by things that were more interesting because they were less likely to be seen as being distracted. Yeah, it was a problem. 
kids missed out on a lot of learning. Mm. You know, all kids did. Right. But right. kids with ADHD in particular were finding themselves checked out and bored at a high at a high rate. Was there a silver lining in the sense that because of that heightened rate that coming out of the COVID era, mm. <laughs> um, there was uh, more awareness of it, individuals with ADHD. Like maybe parents mm. were quicker to assess, like, hey, maybe my child. I didn't see that, okay. but that's a good question. And somebody may have researched that because their researchers are looking at the fallout and the benefits of COVID and learning at home and working from home too. They're looking right. at that. Right. Um, a lot of kids with ADHD, what I see is a lot of kids with ADHD have come out of that stretch of time with more depression and more anxiety mm-hmm. as a result about school and learning and friendships. And they missed out on some developmental years that, you know, opportunities to grow that they didn't have because those relationships weren't live. It's really tragic. Last question, I think. Did you and your ex-husband seek out a child of need when you decided to adopt, or did it just happen? Just happened. Wow. Yeah, no, we, we, um, he came into our home at five days old. Wow. So we didn't, we didn't know. Yeah. But when he was like Tigger, choo, 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 <laughs> or as his Waldorf, he went to Waldorf nursery wow. school, his Waldorf teacher on his last day there, she came up to me and she says, you know, the first day that Dash, his name's Dash, totally perfect for hyperactive ADHD. <laughs> That's why he has ADHD, because we named him Dash. Yeah, uh, we would have named him something else, he wouldn't have ADHD. Yeah, he could have named him Sluggish. Right? <laughs> yeah, or Slug. <laughs> right, then he would have. So she said, the first day that Dash was here at preschool, she said, so-and-so, one the co-teacher, the co-teacher and I talked afterwards, she said, and I said, that is a very busy boy. Wow. <laughs> he just he, he he was he he now is a soccer referee. Oh wow! And teaches also at a school for kids with learning disabilities. And that boy, well, young man, can referee six games in a day. Be a little tired when he gets home, and then revive and be ready to go. Wow! Whatever. That's He's awesome. got tons of energy. So you know there there are some upsides. The ADHD, That's great. Uh, but there's lots of downsides. Yeah. yeah, is he happy? Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Are you happy? Yeah, That's yeah, great. yeah, yeah. I'm glad to see him. You know the development that happened over his his years. I I didn't think he'd go to college. I didn't think he would. You know, I was concerned about him and how he was going to manage life. And he slowly did classes at College of Marin. Um, he didn't go on past college of Rim, but he has four AAs, wow. <laughs> anthropology, drama, dance, and kinesiology. Wow. And, uh, you know, who knows? He may go on at some point. He's 30 now. And, um, and he refs 
soccer. Yeah, so. referee soccer. In fact, he's at a tournament right now, refereeing. Is it yeah. down south? And it's actually in another state. Arizona? It's Texas. Oh, okay. Yeah, he goes to different... Uh, that you know about? My brother refs. Ah, okay. And, um... Yeah. Yeah. Tournaments. Yeah, so your son has to have a very intricate knowledge of the game. Like, oh, I yeah. For my brother. Yeah. And I don't know, are you a Monty Python fan? Yes. Have you seen the video of John Cleese explaining offsides? Yes, I vaguely remember it. He just ends up through the hearing and ends with him going, offsides is when the ref raises the flag. Right, you know, right. Just so... <laughs> Because, anyway, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. My, I'm going to have to look that up because my son, I don't think my son has seen that. Oh, really? Yeah. It's, my brother I've forgotten loves about that. It because he said, still to this day, there's so many arguments about offside. Oh, yeah. There are. And it's, you know, my son would say the same thing. If I call offsides, even if I'm wrong, it's offsides. Yeah, that's, <laughs> we make mistakes, but yeah. it's offsides if I say it's offsides. Yeah. And it, well, it doesn't even matter. Because I know my brother just—it's a passion. And yes. He's always talking with peers, wanting to learn to be a better ref. Yes. Like, and he, oh, it's yes. Yes. That's that's my same as Gosh. same as him. That's uh, yeah. Uh, he loves it. Yeah. And how passion. did he play soccer when he, he was? He uh, was a goalie. All right. Yeah. Just you know, recreational soccer. Right. So he didn't play at college, Marin. No. Mm-mm. Wow. No. No, but he started refereeing when he was 17, I think. Oh, wow. And he was, that first year, he was youth soccer referee of the year. Wow. Then he turned 18, and then he was adult soccer referee of the year. So he's got a talent for it. And the energy. And the energy. The energy makes a big difference, yeah. And the passion. Well, Holly, thank you very, very much for your time and your education. Yes. I learned a lot today. Good. And I've got one last message. Yes. May everybody with ADHD find their passion because they're not bored. They don't lose their focus. <laughs> is therapy your passion? Therapy's my passion. It is. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Thank you.